Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. At 22, Judith Freeman was working in the Mormon Church-owned department store in the Utah town where she'd grown up. In the process of divorcing the man she had married at 17, she was living in her parents' house with her four-year-old son who'd already endured two heart surgeries. She had abandoned Mormonism, the faith into which she had been born, and she was having an affair with her son's surgeon, a married man with three children of his own. It was at this fraught moment that she decided to become a writer. In her new memoir, The Latter Days, Freeman explores the circumstances and choices that informed her course and those that allowed her to find a way forward. The Latter Days is a portrait of resilience and forgiveness, of memory and hindsight, and of the ways which we come to identify our truest selves. Judith Freeman will read from The Latter Days uh, this evening at 7 o'clock at the King's English Bookshop. That uh, event is free and open to the public. And uh, in July, at the end of July, Thursday, July 29th, uh, she'll speak about memories of a Mormon girlhood in conjunction with a Skype Q&A with Reza Aslan. Uh, that's a part of the annual Sunstone Conference, and uh, more information at uh, sunstone.org. Uh, Judith Freeman, a pleasure to welcome you uh, to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, for having me. I'm, I'm really pleased to, to be speaking to you today. And I uh, should note that uh, Judith Freeman joins us from the studios of KUER in Salt Lake City. We appreciate the good folks at uh, KUER for accommodating uh, this. Um, I'm, I'm curious how the memoir came about, and I understand this came about, uh, you were asked to, to write something about Mitt Romney. Is that true? It's true. It was almost exactly four years ago um, during uh, Mitney. Mitt Romney's run for the uh, presidency, and people really couldn't understand who he was. They didn't know much about his faith, and he wasn't really speaking about it that much. So I was asked by the Los Angeles Review of Books to write an essay, and it took me a while to find the tone and the voice of that essay. But when I did, I realized that I, I had found a certain way of writing about my own life. And I took that 23-page essay to my editor and said, um, I think I'd like to write a memoir. And after four or five books of fiction and a biography of Raymond Chandler, uh, he said to me, this is the book I've been waiting for you to write, so uh, here's an advance, go write it. Hmm. By the way, parenthetically, the, that essay is very interesting. Uh, your great-grandfather and Mitt Romney's great-grandfather had a connection. Yes, they did, and it's one that I hadn't known about. But um, they were both arrested for polygamy uh, in the 1880s. They were both patriarchs of their small towns uh, that they had settled in northern Arizona. Miles P. Romney, Mitt Romney's great-grandfather, and my great-grandfather, William Jordan Flake, who had settled Snowflake, um, they were both um, arrested and had to post bail. And uh, Miles Romney didn't have the $1,000. So my great-grandfather borrowed the money, the bail for both of them to get out of jail while they were awaiting trial. But Miles Romney never went to trial. He left for Mexico with his wives. Eventually, he had five and his many children, and settled a, a polygamist Mormon colony uh, called Colonial Juarez. My great-grandfather was sent to the Yuma Territorial Prison for six months, came out, went back to his two wives and his many children, um, resumed his position as a leader in the community, 
became one of the first state senators and and died at an, a, a very advanced age. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, so uh, what was it, before we get to the memoir, what was it do you think the people wanted to know about Mitt Romney and felt like they didn't know? Because he was, you know, iconic at that point. He was known as a Mormon, right? The, the first major Mormon candidate. Right. He was known as a, uh, as, uh, he, obviously, every everyone I uh, understood that he came from from this culture, and that his his father, you know, had been a, a very powerful figure, and and Mitt Romney had been a, a a bishop and a stake president, but these these terms didn't really mean anything to most Americans, and because Mitt Romney wasn't speaking much about his religion, and one can really understand how he made that decision in a kind of ruthless political culture where he had to appeal to evangelicals who had no great affection for Mormons. Anyway, I think Mormons have, for so many years, been viewed as a kind of secretive religion. And there's so much that's not understood or that's misunderstood. So I I think people were seeking to understand what did it mean to have a Mormon president? And I don't think that Romney actually ever addressed that. And I had certain questions about what it might mean. I thought he would have been better off speaking about his faith and explaining his his roles in the church and his devotion to the church and how he was raised. Um, but I, I think that people were just looking to understand a man that appeared rather enigmatic, um, almost hollow to, to some people. Hmm. Do you think uh, Mormon culture is 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 viewed uh, kind of on a surface level? There's a stereotype. Yeah, I'm thinking of you know Book of Mormon, the musical, for for another uh, bullet point there. Um, and if so, is, is you are you trying to deepen that portrait? Is that one of the goals of the memoir? I think the, that that that. What my editor had said to me is that we want you to write a book about what it's like growing up in a particular culture, in a particular place, a particular religion at a particular time. And I I think, yes, he thought that there was much about this religion and about this place, Utah, um, that uh, could be revealed uh, but I also think that he was looking for a very particular story, which was my story, where I came from, a big family of eight children born in Ogden, Utah, to very devout Mormon parents, um, very good, intelligent people, um, but who had never been to college, uh, a kind of uh, middle-class uh, family. But I, th- I think he also... Um, was imagining that in writing about my story, I would also write about uh, this particular world and open it up more. You have you've addressed, you know, Mormon culture, the Chinchilla Farm and Red Water. Uh, there's uh, you say writing this essay allowed you to find a voice that allowed you into the to the memoir. What what was that? What was that voice? Do you think what what allowed you to to now plunge into a memoir? Well, I think the essay that I wrote four years ago, which was published on the eve of the Republican convention, began with the the sentence, Mitt Romney owes me money. 
And the irony of that statement was lost on certain people who began sending me really vitriolic emails like, <laughs> why don't you go out and get a job instead of getting money from Mitt Romney? And uh, there was a tremendous kind of blowback. But I realized with that first sentence that the way to approach my life was with a, a, a certain lightness that uh, the voice also should be very frank and very honest and very open. And I certainly wasn't a- approaching the idea of irony but, and not really humor, um, but, but something lighter and something completely non-judgmental. I think readers are so smart and that when you write about your childhood, if you simply describe certain moments, certain people, events, times, what you felt, but you don't embellish that and you don't judge that, that you give the reader an opportunity to infuse that narrative with feeling. And um, I've been very happy in that the reaction that I've gotten to the book thus far is almost universally, uh, it's so non-judgmental. You aren't really judging these people in your past, or these events, or this place that you came from, or this religion. You're simply telling a story and, 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 and revealing incidents and times and places. Um, so I think that that tone that I found, that frankness and that openness, I had to be very willing to write about myself. Um, I mean, in your introduction, when you talk about the girl that I was at, at, at 22, I had to be willing to admit to my own uh, foibles and to be as, uh, if I was going to be critical, I would have to be critical of myself as well. And, uh, of course, these foibles, you know, they'd be foibles in any culture, but especially in a fairly strict culture. Like, like like the Mormon culture and your, and your family. Yes, and I thought, you know, I'd always been kind of a rebel from the time I was very young. I was a tomboy. I loved horses. I loved being in the outdoors. Um, I really began to question uh, the whole idea of what I was being taught in a kind of black and white way um, that I couldn't, I couldn't make sense of. I, I couldn't accept. And yet, when you are raised in a culture where everyone you know, everyone who surrounds you, all your teachers, the politicians, um, everyone in your family is Mormon, it's very hard to carve out any kind of separate life for yourself. And one of the astonishing things writing this memoir is that I, I could look back and, and see evidence that I was not uh, so completely that that wild and rather rebellious um, uh, girl. There was also a girl who very much was embedded in the culture and trying to please her parents and trying to please her seminary teacher. So it was it was as though I almost didn't recognize that teenage girl I discovered in in a notebook that I kept at the time. Um, and that was very revealing to me. 
This is the turquoise notebook, and that's uh, the title of a, a, a section, right? This is a, a notebook you uh, started in a, a seminary class, religious class? Yes, I, I think it was when I was in a, a junior, and um, it was a bound notebook in which uh, we kept all of the worksheets and the handouts and the essays that we wrote and the tests, everything that we were being taught. And um, somehow my parents kept that notebook, this thick binder with, with all these mimeographed sheets and my, and my handwritten uh, uh, responses to quizzes and, and uh, assignments. And it's one thing to rely on memory, and part of this book is really looking at the fallibility and the fiction of memory, the stories that we create about our past that help us develop the image of ourselves that we want to hold as adults. It's, it's one thing to create those memories and, and to think that that is uh, factual. It's another thing to find some kind of written evidence, like the turquoise notebook, that came back to me after my parents' deaths in the 1990s. And when I looked at that notebook, I really uh, I didn't want to open it. I felt like there was a past in there that um, would disturb me if I, if I looked at it too closely. But when I decided to write this memoir, of course, I had to look at it. And in fact, it was uh, uh, an unsettling experience to not only see what I was being taught, but to see what I was uh, responding to, how I was presenting myself at that point in my life. And again, I have to say, it was almost a girl I didn't recognize. Mm. But in the end, it was me. Mm. It, it, there's, there was no way to deny that. It's interesting to hear you talk about that, not wanting to open that notebook. I've had that, that experience. I, I've not wanted to go back and, and open journals. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I don't want to have the, my memory of myself that I've constructed in my mind changed. Did, did you have that, I don't know, fear or, or discomfort? Oh, definitely. And I, I think also when we do, I, I've never kept journals uh, on any kind of regular basis. I keep notebooks with thoughts or what I'm reading or quotes. But I think if we were to look at things we've written when we're 12 or 14 or 15, they're usually just incredibly banal. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're about a boy that yeah. we wish would call us or they're about some perceived injury or they're, they're so self-involved. We're such evolving creatures at that age, but we're so self-referential. Everything really is about us. So I think what we see when we when we you know open those those portals to the past is um, a version of ourselves that doesn't fit doesn't quite fit with the way that that we've remembered ourselves. Mm. Um, but I think it's very revealing and and um, maybe important. That we that we face those selves, and that we uh, make a nod to the people that we used to be, and and that we accept that we're constantly not only evolving, but our memory is so plastic. We don't have fixed memories. I've come to believe, but they're constantly shifting, and 
and shaping. And in, just in terms of the project that I think each of us undertake to come to know ourselves better throughout the course of our lives, this can be a very useful thing to, to look back at those former selves uh, with a kind of generosity and kindness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, maybe one of my fears is the banality. I don't want to <laughs> see how self-involved and banal I was back then. Uh, maybe share that with a lot of people. In, in a uh, interview <laughs> you gave with, um, with your publisher, you, uh, you quoted Faulkner. You said uh, Faulkner says that uh, human beings can never really know their pasts, but, but is it important for us to, to try? Oh, I think it is. I think it's very important. Um, I, I somehow just think it helps us become more fulsome, um, complete people. And uh, we're talking about individuals. But I think if, his, if as individuals we look at our past... And, and come to a, a greater understanding of who we are and where we came from, we have a much better chance as a culture, as a people, as a community, as a nation, um, for reckoning uh, with history. And it's, it's very important that we don't erase that, that we embrace it and learn from it. We're talking with Judith Freeman, author most recently of a memoir. It's called The Latter Days. It's just out. And uh, she'll be involved in a couple of events. The first of those in Utah is this evening, 7 o'clock. She'll be reading from The Latter Days at the King's English Bookshop, 7 o'clock. That's free and open to the public. And in July, July 29th, uh, she'll be speaking about memories of a Mormon girlhood in conjunction with a Skype Q&A with Reza Aslan. And that's a part of the annual Sunstone Conference. That'll be July 29th, 7 p.m., University of Utah Student Union Saltaire Room. Uh, our thanks to KUER. We're uh, using their studios. Judith Freeman is there and joins us for Access Utah for the hour. Uh, let's take a break. More following this break. Did you know that people in healthy relationships have certain qualities in common? They manage their time. They are good listeners, and they put away their phones during a conversation. They show empathy for their partners. They're responsible with money, and they deal well with conflict. They know how to handle stress effectively and work with their partner as a team. These skills can make or break relationships. If you do not feel you have the tools to be successful in a relationship, you can learn. You can take a relationships class or go to a professional like a marriage and family therapist or a family finance counselor. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians. Located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We have with us uh, for the hour Judith Freeman. Her uh, books include uh, novels, uh, Red Water, The Chinchilla Farm, Set for Life, and uh, A Desert of pure, pure Feeling. Family Attractions is a collection of stories. She's author of a biography of Raymond Chandler, a biography or rather of Raymond Chandler, The Long Embrace. And uh, the latest book is The Latter Days. It's a memoir. And uh, she joins us from the KUR studios. Our thanks to them. Uh, a couple of events. You can uh, go and hear Judith Freeman reading from the latter days uh, this evening at 7 o'clock at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. 
And then at the end of July, July 29th, a part of the Sunstone Conference, uh, she'll be uh, speaking about memories of a Mormon girlhood in conjunction with a Skype Q&A with Reza Aslan. That'll be coming up on July 29th. Uh, so, Judith Freeman, there are I mean, very many serious passages in the book, but as you said, there's kind of a tone not quite of irony, but uh, but approaching that. And uh, there are some just some wonderful passages, humorous passages. I really responded to the girls' camp when <laughs> Uncle Leo and Aunt Ione, is that how you say her name? Yes. Would, would dress, dress up. Uh, they'd go up the hill. Spotlights on them, and they they would uh, they would play Nelson Eddy and and Jeanette McDonald. Yes, it was amazing. I loved going to that LDS girls camp. Uh, it was up near Ben Lomond, the backside of Ben Lomond, and uh, and Uncle Leo and Aunt Ione were such great characters. They were they were just lovely, and they would dress up as Indians, and they would wear terrible wigs and buckskin outfits <laughs> and stand, go way up on the hillside in the dark, and then we would all be led around a, a campfire that hadn't been lit yet, and it was at night, and then suddenly a spotlight would illuminate them standing on the, the hillside, and they would begin singing in this warbly voices the Indian love song. And it was just extraordinary. They would call to each other, you know, I'll be loving you, la, la, la. And, you know, they would go through the Indian love song. And then I never knew how they did this, but it, there must have been a ball of rags soaked in kerosene connected to a wire. And from where they were standing way up in the hillside, and they'd light that that ball of, you know, kerosene-soaked rags, and it would whoosh down the mountainside on this, on this wire, and and hit the campfire, and it would explode into flames. <laughs> and it was so theatrical and so mm. dramatic, and needless to say, so dangerous. I mean, yeah, it's it's really extraordinary that. That you, they would do that, and no one would ever do that now. But it was thrilling, and you know that there was so much about my childhood that was so much fun, hmm. and uh, was just full of good feeling and activity, and and I think that the the Mormons are so good at this, at at creating these lively uh, groups for children and and games and sports and theatrics and dance and you know it's it's so interesting my friend John Borstein who's the son of Daniel Borstein the historian um, we know each other in LA and John wrote me an email after he read my book and said your childhood sounded like just so much fun and so rich and Mine just seemed so empty and boring. We would have all these intellectuals come to dinner, and, <laughs> and it was all about uh, history and academics and and discussions. And I, he said, I read your book, and I was so envious. Mm. Was there a part of you, sometimes grass is greener, did part of you that wanted his childhood? Well, I think, for one thing, I would very much like to have been raised in a household with books. Mm -hmm. Naturally, there were a lot of books in the Bornstein household, many of them written by his father. We really didn't um, 
have novels or books. We had some readers digest condensed books, but we had religious books. And I don't remember owning a library card. I don't remember going to a library as a child. I really wasn't a very good student. I really wasn't much of a reader. Um, so I think for all of us, there's always a little bit of a, a grass is always greener. Um, I didn't really become a reader until I was 19, a serious reader. Mm. Um, uh, so yes, I, I, I suppose I think at times when I, I hear writers say, I knew I wanted to be a writer when I was eight years old, and I wrote my first short story then. And I, I was clueless. I mean, I, I had no idea that there was this great world of literature out there. So um, there have been times when I thought, gee, I wish I'd gotten uh, a start earlier. Um, or gee, I wish I'd really gone to college and, and earned a degree and studied the great books. Instead, I am mostly an autodidact, and I have a, a, a passion for reading that I acquired at that age that you sp speak about, of about 22, when I said, this is it, this is what I want to do. Mm. And I think that it's, you can become very educated uh, if you make a commitment to reading. It's all there for you in the books. Tell me about that. I want to loop back, but maybe right now, t tell me about about that that moment. There, there's a moment I think, uh, at least a time when you literature became very important to you, and and uh, it was very freeing for you to to say yes, I want to become a writer. Well, very briefly, as you mentioned, my my son Todd uh, was born with a major congenital heart defect, and he had his first surgery at the age of three weeks at the LDS, Ho LDS Hospital here in Salt Lake City. But he required a, a major surgery that, that he would have to be put on a bypass machine, and then you had to weigh 30 pounds. Eventually, when he was two and a half, we took him to Minnesota, and he was operated on at the Variety Club Heart Hospital at the university. And my husband, John Thorne, who I was married to at the time, Todd's father, um, was getting his doctorate degree, and he also was hired to become a counselor and a, a dorm director at a, a wonderful college in St. Paul called McAllister College. And so we moved into a dorm, and at the age of 19, I became a dorm mother. And I mm. found myself in that place I never thought I would, on a college campus, and I could take classes for free. And I took my first literature class from a wonderful man named Roger Blakely. And when I discovered reading, when I discovered Willa Cather and Virginia Woolf, and especially Thomas Hardy and D.H. Lawrence, I thought, who knew? There's this extraordinary world of storytelling. And I also understood it's the way that I would, that I would come to know the world. And I, at that moment, said, this is what I want to do. I, I want to be a storyteller. I would only stay at McAllister for another year or so, take a few more classes, a writing class, and then I would separate from my husband and eventually get divorced, and I came back to Utah, to Ogden. But I, during that very short time, had discovered literature and I also, against all odds, had decided, well, I think, I think this is what I'll try to do. I'll try and be a writer. And that's, that's a pretty audacious goal, isn't it? Did you know that the, the barriers, I guess the, the odds against 
becoming successful? I guess, but you know, when you're that age, you you um, you have all kinds of dreams that completely outpace reality, and if they didn't, you know, uh, you would never enter that that world of striving. And it was an audacious idea. And so you could say, what made you think you could become a writer? And what made you think you had stories to tell? And to the first question, I had absolutely no answer. Hmm. I have no idea what made me think I could become a writer. But to the second question, I really did feel that I had stories to tell. Hmm. Um, and, And if I just could learn how to write if I could figure out how to tell those stories, well, then, then I'd be able to do it. What's your advice then to, uh, to people who have similar goals? If, if, if you have a story to tell, then, then tell it. Find a way. I think that, you know, Raymond Chandler said it very well. He said, study and emulate. That's how you become a writer. And it's the way for centuries people have become writers. We did not have MFA writing programs. Um, in the 1700s, we—they're um, very new. So I read, and then read more, and then read some more, and read the people who um, are telling the kinds of stories that you deeply, deeply admire, and study how they make those stories. And I remember when I was first trying to write. Um, Mary Gordon had just published a book about growing up Catholic. It was her first novel. I think it was called Final Payments. And I remember making a graph and sitting down and trying to figure out how does she move characters from scene to scene? How does she change scene? How does she create a flow of narrative? And really study and emulate. We all, we all learn from you know, the authors that, that we really admire. If you just joined us, we're uh, talking with Judith Freeman, author most recently of a memoir, The Latter Days. Getting good reviews. It's out uh, just very recently, and she joins us from KUR Studios in uh, Salt Lake City. I wonder uh, if I could have you read a, a passage. This is uh, page six, part of your prologue. Sure. Uh, Let be- me just, just turn to it Just the, the long paragraph starting occasionally, my mother and I. This is... Uh, you're, you're back in Utah with your son mm-hmm. and living with your parents for, for a time and, and working back, was it at ZCMI? That's right, in Ogden. In Ogden. And your mother was working there as well. So She was. Um, we both had jobs for the holiday season. So shall I read this uh, yes, paragraph? Yes, yes. Occasionally my mother and I take our lunch breaks together and go to the restaurant on the second floor of the department store and share a sandwich. And sometimes her friend Ada comes with us. Ada works in gift wrapping too and is more or less my mother's age, late 50s or maybe even 60. Ada isn't really that smart, not like my mother, who has to do all the addition for Ada when it comes to figuring out what to charge a customer for the special gift wrapping. My mother has only a high school education, but you'd never know it. She's sharp. Growing up, whenever I wanted to know something, how to spell a word, for instance, or the capital of a foreign country, all I had to do was ask my mother. She has given birth to eight children, and she's never worked outside the home before, or at least not since she was married. But now all of her children are grown and gone, except for her youngest son, Greg born when she was in her 40s. 
My father has recently begun having health problems. He had a grand mal seizure that almost killed him and had to retire from his job working in civilian personnel for the Air Force. Now I am back in Utah living with him and my younger brother, Greg. My father said my son and I could return, but I had to pay $100 a month rent, which is why I have the job in the cookware department. He said it wasn't about the money, which they don't really need, nor is it about space. The house I have moved back into has six bedrooms, and only my little brother is left at home. It's about teaching me a lesson, my father said, that I won't get something for nothing. Hmm. Kind of a, a little bit there on, on uh, each of your parents. Um, uh, it was interesting for me to view parts of this memoir through their eyes, and I, I think uh, they would stand in for many parents, especially you know religious parents. Eight children, they, they want them all to follow their steps in the religion. Some of them don't, in, in, including, including you. And uh, so that you have to, I guess, renegotiate the relationships? Well, as, as, as you know, I mean, uh, relationships with our parents are lifelong endeavors. And what I think surprised me is even that after our parents die, we continue to uh, have a relationship and have an evolving relationship with those parents. It isn't as though it just ends. And I think writing this book was um, a great step forward in understanding my parents, in being more truthful about them as, as being more complex people with their great strengths and, and their weaknesses. Um, so it was, a, it was a revelation to me to become more honest um, in looking, at, especially at my father. Mm. There's a scene in the book where you, uh, you go to visit your ex-husband. And he kind of walks you through, pulls up memories perhaps you hadn't wanted to have about your father's uh, temper. Right. I think that, you know, Joan Didion also said, you know, uh, how, that it's, it's it, it, I can't remember the exact words, but it's, it's amazing the things that we think we would never forget, that we forget. And... Um, my father definitely had a side to him that when he got angry, he often had to hurt someone. He had to let that anger kind of spew out in, in some direction. And when I made that trip um, last summer to see my ex-husband, because there were some questions that I want to, wanted to ask him, it's kind of almost like fact-checking. Um, did this really happen the way that I remember it? Do you remember this this way? And he revealed a, a few things to me uh, when I asked him some questions that I had completely forgotten, mm. and they were such important things. Mm. And I, I don't want to give too much away by saying mm. now uh, what those things were, but mm -hmm. they were startling to me, mm. and they had to do with my father. And when he reminded me of these choices or events um, or, th or things that I, I knew they were true. And again, I was amazed at the things that we choose to forget, sometimes very, very important things. Um, and in being able to recognize the complexity of my father, I think I also 
have uh, been able to be uh, more generous and forgiving uh, with with him and with myself. That brings me back to think about memory, and you you write a lot about memory. The memory we think we'd like to think of it, I think, as as static, but it is it is very fluid. It really is. Uh, uh, Mary McCarthy, when she wrote her memoir, uh, Memories of a Catholic Girlhood, would write a chapter and then go and ask her brother or her uncle, did it really happen this way? <laughs> um, I, I didn't feel that I wanted to do that, except at the very end, checking just a few things, certain things, with my ex-husband. But what I came to feel is that in terms of memory, the most important element is feeling that at some point during our childhood or our past, some great strong feeling was evoked in us. And that feeling registered very strongly in our brains. And it is that feeling around which we began to spin other details. Who was there? What was said? How I, you know, reacted? What you did? What she did? Um, and it really is the feeling that is at the core of that memory. And many of the details, if we were to check them with other people who were part of that experience, they would say, no, 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 that's not, that's not what happened. That's not what was said. That's not what you did or I did. But what's undeniable is that, that the core of that memory is that we felt something. And that feeling was genuine. And that feeling has never left us. And it could be that later we get more information, we, we adjust the picture, but, but what probably doesn't ever change is the feeling at the center of the memory. Hmm. Let's take another break. Uh, we'll come back and talk more in the last segment with uh, Judith Freeman. Uh, Judith Freeman is uh, author of Red Water, The Chinchilla Farm, Set for Life, uh, Desert of Pure Feeling. Those are all novels. Family Attractions is a collection of stories. She also wrote The Long Embrace, a biography of uh, Raymond Chandler. And uh, her most recent book is uh, The, the uh, Latter Days. It's a memoir. And uh, you have an opportunity to interact with Judith Freeman. A couple of events. One of those is this evening at 7 o'clock at the King's English Bookshop. Um, she'll be reading from her memoir. Then July 29th, she'll be uh, at the annual Sunstone Conference speaking about memories of Mormon girlhood in conjunction with a Skype Q&A with Reza Aslan. That's July 29th at the University of uh, Utah. More following the break. Nobody gets to speak without race being a factor. On the next Radio Lab. U.S. federal government through an act of Congress will substantially reform domestic trans- This is academic debate. The white world of college debate is upended <laughs> yeah. by a team of black debaters. Sometimes you need to duck walk on them. Dead set on changing the rules. It made people stop. He said, you should go down the hall because that's where poetry prose is held. Join us for the next Radio Lab. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio congratulates the USU campus in Brigham City for receiving certification for sustainable building. The recently opened Brigham City Academic Building achieved LEED certification for implementing practical and measurable strategies, including sustainable site development, water savings, energy efficiency, material selection, and indoor environmental quality. Kudos from Utah Public Radio.
Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. My name is Tom Williams, and I have with me uh, Judith Freeman, author of uh, four novels, a collection of stories, and uh, The Long Embrace, a biography of Raymond Chandler. Her latest is a very interesting uh, new memoir. It's called The Latter Days. And Judith Freeman joins us from the KUR studios in Salt Lake City. Thanks to the good folks at KUR. Uh, She'll be reading from the latter days this evening at 7 o'clock at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. And then on July 29th, she'll be at the annual Sunstone Conference happening at uh, this event at the University of Utah Student Union Saltaire Room. Um, So, Judith Freeman, um, I was very touched by your description of your, your oldest brother, Bob. Um, this gets us into some some themes. It was, it's interesting to me how you, because you didn't really know him as fully as you wanted to come to know him. You were one of the younger kids, right? And and he was the oldest. He right. went off, joined the Navy at age 17. Right. Died at age, age 18. You went uh, to his naval records trying to piece together parts of his life. Right. I You know, I think we all have an event in our childhood, Tom, that is, is, is seminal, that there's there's usually one or two events that are so important, and, and for me it was definitely the death of my older brother, Bob, when he was 19, and I was eight years old. And I was the sixth child, he was the firstborn, and um, he had dropped out of high school to join the Navy, and he had met a woman from Colombia, a dark-skinned, Spanish-speaking beautician, probably on shore leave when he was in San Francisco. They fell in love. She became pregnant. And he told my parents they were going to get married. This was a very difficult thing, you know, for my parents to accept the whole situation. And then added to that, he became sick. He developed bone cancer, um, which was a very strange thing for a very healthy, you know, Utah-raised boy. And um, it was so... Uh, convulsive this year, 1954, because that was the year that my mother gave birth to her youngest son, and she lost her oldest son, and she became a grandmother, all within a few months' time. Bob's daughter was born just before he died, and my mother's youngest son, Greg, was born just before that. And uh, when Bob's body was sent home to Ogden, Utah for burial. That funeral I will never forget. Um, uh, Alicia, his wife, had had asked for Via con Dios to be sung at the funeral, and um, she probably was the only non-white person there in that room, and she was the only Catholic, certainly. Um, so this really was the first introduction, I think, into the whole idea of the other, the something very different than us that came into my consciousness. And when you're eight, you actually do really begin to have a strong awareness of the world. And um, it was a great loss for my family, but it was also complicated terribly by these feelings of um, Alicia coming from a very different world and from a child being born that they could never completely embrace as a granddaughter. And we all know in Mormon culture how important family is. Um, So the loss of Bob, and he was such a beautiful, handsome, James Dean kind of looking young man. Um, It was very tragic for my family. You're right that uh, this is, he was kind of lost all over again, right? Bob wasn't talked that much about. 
later on. So the younger kids who didn't know him all that well sort of kind of disappeared for a while. I guess that's why you wanted to, to research and reclaim right. him. This, Bob always, this, because of his death and the tragedy of it and because of Alicia and because of my parents' complex feelings about her Catholicism and that she had made the unintentional error of having a cross put on his tombstone without ever realizing that that would offend my parents. Um, there was just always not just an aura of, of sadness around uh, him and his death, but also of a, a kind of a shame uh, that I think was embedded for a long time. And so I wrote away for his records from the Navy so that I could look at um, all the questions that he was asked, how he became ill, his medical treatment, his prognosis, and eventually his death. And while it didn't answer a whole lot of questions for me, it did bring him closer to me. He did become more of an individual. I did feel like I restored him in some way to um, to our family. Hmm. You talk about, in, in, in terms of the broader Mormon culture, um, you talk about, I don't know if these are your words, but restoring complexity or, or the fact that from the outside, uh, people maybe don't see complexity, and, and including people in the culture, uh, portray themselves mm-hmm. as being one way, and, and sometimes they're not fully the, the way that they're portraying themselves to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would be very um, upset if, 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 if people within the culture, if Mormons would read this book and think, well, that's not my experience. What is she writing about? Or that people outside the culture would look at my book and think, well, that's the way Mormons are. They're all like that. I think that there are as many varieties of Mormons as there are colors of cats and breeds of cats. They come in tremendous variety. And I'm so struck by the, the, the intelligence in the community, the smart Mormons, the Mormons who I probably would have more empathy with, who have very open world-embracing views. We have rural people, and we have very sophisticated, very educated, very accomplished um, people of every stripe. And I think Mormons tend, do tend to get leveled a bit. They're looked at by the outside world in a, in a really kind of shallow way, and that's unfortunate. Because it's a, there is a leveling influence from the top, from the hierarchy, from the church authorities that does filter down, asking everyone to behave or to think or to respond in a certain way to certain cultural questions. But within the community, I know that there are many, many free-thinking people, and, and we, we really don't deserve that kind of... Um, uh, shallow uh, uh, view. What what part of you remains culturally Mormon? This is how you were raised: religion and culture. You've left the religion, but uh, do you do you parse that out, or do you, is that important to you, or 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 oh, just part of who you are? <laughs> it's so interesting, Tom. When I I was listening to your introduction and to the point at which you said that I I had abandoned Mormonism. And, um, you know, to me... Uh, Go ahead. 
um, uh, to me, uh, uh, it would be like um, uh, a Native American writer like James Welch saying, I have abandoned being a Blackfeet Indian. Pretty hard to do. So I think that if one can think of, you know, the, the idea that there are cultural Mormons, there are feminist Mormons, there are cultural, liberal, um, feminist, um, uh, any, there, there are many varieties, and I don't feel that I have abandoned the tribe. The tribe will always be with me, and I think of Mormons as much as a tribe and a culture, as a religion. And there's no way that I could purge that, even if I wanted to. It may be true that I don't go church anymore, but there's never a time when I will be able to shed the idea, the culture that I come from, the people that I come from, the history. So that's with me, I think, forever. What do you hope readers will get from the latter days? I hope that they will... uh, discover a generous story, and um, that they will have a very pleasurable and deep reading experience, literary experience. And I hope that they might find something of their own experience in, in my story. What, uh, what, have, what changes have happened because you dove into this, this past and, and wrote the, the memoir? How has it changed you? Well, I think that's a really interesting question, Tom. And I'm not sure that it's one that I can answer quite yet because uh, I'm, I'm still parsing in a way that the, the really deep excavation that I did of my own life. But I think I've come to a, a very gentle feeling about my past. And in a strange way, it's brought me back to a, a, a deeper affection for it and a much more comfortable um, feeling about being raised a Mormon. Hmm. Just have a, a, a couple of minutes left. I, I'd like to close with uh, with two photographs. Um, and of course, we're on the radio, so people can't see them, but <laughs> they get your book, uh, the, the the cover photograph. This is you mm-hmm. in your teens, I think, uh, somewhere. Uh, yes, I think I'm a junior in high school. And I, I don't know, I, I, I kind of uh, detect a little bit of guardedness. I'm not sure if you see that in, in yourself. Uh, there, you know, a lively, intelligent uh, young woman. Then I- inside the, the, the back uh, cover of the jacket, the, a photograph of you at the time that you're working on your first novel. Right. And I wonder, compare and contrast those two points in your life, and I guess these are our snapshots, you know, quote-unquote, and, and, and off we go, creating more. Right, exactly. The cover photo is especially, I think, powerful because... It is a detail of a group photograph from my high school play when I was playing Anne Frank in the diary of Anne Frank. And yet you look at the picture and there's, it's kind of a little vixen. So it's such a strange combination of knowingness and innocence, I think, in this girl's face, especially in her eyes. Is she kind of a seductive uh, uh, teenager, uh, uh, or is she, is she, a, you know, uh, a rather seeking, quizzical young woman? And I think the truth is both. But a year after this picture was taken, I was married at seventeen, the day after I graduated from high school. And when you look at that girl, you think, 
how could she possibly have gotten married a year after this was taken? I guess yeah, hidden depths behind a lot of the photographs we take. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the very interesting uh, memoir, The Latter Days, uh, a memoir is out from uh, Judith Freeman, and uh, you can uh, hear her read from her book at the King's English Bookshop tonight, 7 o'clock. That's in Salt Lake City. Then uh, she'll be at the Sunstone Symposium, the Sunstone Conference. Um, that's on Thursday, July 29th, 7 p.m., University of Utah Student Union, Saltaire Room. Uh, Judith Freeman, uh, thank you so much for taking time to be with us. Thank you, Tom. And uh, our thanks to the good folks at KUR. Uh, Judith Freeman joined us from the KUR studios. Uh, hope you'll be with me tomorrow. We'll be talking with uh, Utah author Terry Tempest Williams. Her new book is The Hour of the Land, Appreciation of Our uh, National Parks. That's tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. I'm Jeremy Hobson. As Airbnb grows, it's facing increasing scrutiny, like recent claims that some renters experience racial discrimination when they use the site. Such cases aren't always obvious, and so we have to design the system to overcome any kind of implicit biases that might exist. Airbnb co-founder Nathan Blacharzik joins us. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. Onaje Woodbine was a top player on Yale's basketball team with an NBA career in reach, but he put that aside to study the cultural impact of the game. Coming up, we'll talk about how basketball relates to race and spirituality. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Today at 1, right here on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.